I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. It is rare in the world of corporate power to have a story where David beats Goliath, and rarer still to have one that reads like a fast-paced thriller. So says one of the era's most important nonfiction authors, Adam Hochschild. He's talking about a new book about a subject we literally cannot live without, water. When bright, shining, corporate-driven, and defined, so-called progress excites us and is the focus of attention, little things like access to safe, clean water can get left in the dust. But in communities across the country and around the world, people are shaken awake by serious threats to life's most basic need, water. People not normally active on public issues are taking a stand. When big oil, in combination with a complicit government, rigged the system in their determination to have progress, like uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline endangering water near Standing Rock Sioux, when serious damage was done to the water used by residents of Flint, Michigan, when towns from New York to New Mexico resisted fracking for natural gas extraction that threatened their water, when hundreds of cities and hamlets across Bolivia, Canada, France, and the U.S. fought the privatization of municipal water districts from El Salvador to Indonesia, from Argentina to the Philippines, people have stood up to the great extractive and mining powers and won. But the fight for water is nowhere near complete. While there's a great deal of money at stake, the other side is not only not giving up, they're digging in, determined to impose their self-serving version of progress on the entire planet. But as this new book, The Water Defenders by Robin Broad and John Kavanaugh share with the reader, though the powers that be want us to believe we are powerless, we are anything but powerless. It's a compelling and hopeful story in this new book, The Water Defenders, exposing hidden maneuverings of corporate operatives on one hand, and illuminating crucial turning points in the years-long struggle to protect this precious, irreplaceable, essential resource, water. In addition to the topic of water, the book demands that we examine our long-accepted assumptions about progress itself, and average people are not powerless. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Robin Broad, co-author of The Water Defenders with their husband, John Kavanaugh. They've been involved in the gold mining saga in El Salvador since 2009. Robin is an expert in international development and won a Guggenheim Fellowship for her work on this project, as well as uh, two previous MacArthur Fellowships. I'm impressed. A professor at American University, she served as an international economist in the U.S. Treasury Department, in U.S. Congress, and at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. John is senior advisor and former director of the Washington-based Institute for Policy Studies, an organization that collaborates with the Poor People's Campaign and other dynamic social movements to turn ideas into action for peace, justice, and the environment. He previously worked with the United Nations to research corporate power. Broad and Kavanaugh helped build the International Allies Group that spearheaded the global fight against mining in El Salvador and they've co-authored several previous books together. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Robin Broad. 
Thank you for having me on this show, and thank you for that absolutely perfect introduction. It, it's actually my honor to be on this great show. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Mutual admiration society. The early 2020s appear to be historic turning points in many ways, not the least of which is the suddenly in our face precariousness of so many aspects of the Earth ecosystem. Furious storms, massive wildfires, blistering heat. As was said in the introduction, there are many seemingly isolated life and death struggles for human communities to survive. The story you tell focuses on one example, El Salvador and its people in their effort to repel big gold. Yet you suggest it could just as easily involve a Walmart in Washington, D.C., a fracking company trying to expand in Texas, or petrochemical companies outside New Orleans. How so? Well, as you said, Bert, this, this book is about an unlikely and inspiring victory, actually two unlikely and inspiring victories, that my co-author and husband, John, and I had the privilege to be part of. But it's and it's important that it's in El Salvador, and it's important that it's a victory of water over gold, over mining. But the, if this can happen in an economically poorer country, one, one that the United States and global corporations have exploited for decades, this makes the wind even more remarkable. Because we, we realize, part of why we wrote this book, that we realize that by sharing the story of these wins, we could share this sense of hope with readers, including readers who may have given up hope in these challenging times as corporations seem more and more powerful and yes. move into more and more communities. Across the, the country, across the world, people are waging fights against the likes of Amazon, Walmart, Exxon, Face, Facebook, Wells Fargo, chemical plants outside New Orleans, privatization of water where you are in, in New Hampshire. And while this book is about metals mining, what happened, how the local communities went national and then global to take on this big corporate power is shares tactics that can be used against almost any global corporation. And most of the time we think David and Goliath, ah, that's just a myth. It can't actually happen. But in this book, there are some very inspiring uh, cases. And I know El Salvador a little bit from its history in the 1980s when a brutal military dictatorship supported by the U.S. fought a very bloody civil war against uh, Salvadorans that President Reagan branded as communists. The war ended in 1992, and in 2009, the candidate of the left, the FMLN, Mauricio Funes, was elected president. Right off, his government was faced with an ultimatum, either allow Pacific Rim a Canadian-based mining company, to mine for gold and risk polluting the country's water supply or pay them over $300 million in costs and uh, foregone profits from future mining. Wow. Tell us about that, please. How could a Pacific Rim make such a demand? And wh what happened there? Well, that's, that's actually part of why we, we wrote the book and retold the story after the victory happened. There are... Your, you and your listeners know that there are thousands, millions of pro-corporate 
laws and regulations in place. One of them that very few of us knew about in 2009 um, is something that is called investor state disputes. And under this, and this is what happened to El Salvador, under this, a corporation, as you said, can sue a government if that government basically doesn't allow the corporation to do what it wants to do in that country. <laughs> so Pacific Rim, later bought by Oceana Gold, we have to name the names of the existing corporations. Uh-huh. So Pacific Rim wanted to mine in El Salvador. The price of gold was going up around the world, and so corporations were moving into more and more remote places. Mm. Pacific Rim had a, the right, got the right to explore, that is, to look for gold, but it hadn't yet gotten the right to actually mine, the right to exploit, um, to, to, at the concession to mine. The government of El Salvador, surprisingly enough, under a right-wing president, was looking into the impact of that gold mining, was looking into and was looking at an environmental impact statement that the corporation had done. And the local community, this is key, the the grassroots um, social movement, was pushing the government to look very carefully and to look at the costs of gold. At that point, surprisingly enough, the government said to PACRIM, to Pacific Rim, we're going to take a little longer to look at this. We're not satisfied with your environmental impact statement. That was enough. At that point... The, pre- the, the election happened, and President Funes came in. Pacific Rim, which was sure, and this is tiny El Salvador, right? <laughs> Pacific Rim was sure that El Salvador was going to let it mine. It was the executives at Pacific Rim were totally surprised when little, tiny El Salvador, especially under a right-wing government, was holding up its actual mining license. And they got more and more worried as the left-wing government came in. So they did this really sneaky but, alas, legal thing, and they sued the government of El Salvador Mm. in a secretive tribunal that is at the World Bank Group in Washington, Uh D.C. In that tribunal, corporations can sue governments, not just for expropriation of buildings, not just for repayment of what they've spent in the country, but as you said, for this incredible concept of future profits foregone. And the corporation essentially just makes up a number for what they think the gold price is going to be. Who knows what the price of gold is going to be, right? The price of gold goes up and down. Yeah, great fluctuation. In this case, the corporation sued El Salvador, the government of El Salvador, for $300 million dollars. And the corporations use this technique, they've used it since the the Reagan years, Mm. to basically scare governments. So it's a threat. It's it's saying to the government, "Mm, you better let us in, you better let us mine, because if you don't let us mine, then this World Bank Tribunal is going to hear a case And you know, you the government know as well as we the corporation, that corporations almost always win. So either you let us mine, or you're going to have to pay us $300 million. Well, we can't stand in the way of progress as they define it, right? That's what they want us uh, to believe. And (laughs) Well, progress is indeed to these corporations 
you know, in in the in the book, we um, not only do we quote, quote from government from corporate documents that we were fortunate enough to get access to. I can talk about that more later. But also the the CEO and the head of Pacific Rim did a radio broadcast for Canadian broadcasting where they explain their view of what they explain how they're going to win. They explain why they should win and they share their view of progress. And as the the CEO of the corporation says with great disdain and yes, some racism, she says, and now I'm not quoting exactly, I'm somewhat paraphrasing. She says, I mean, these are corn and bean farmers. Of course they want mining. How could they not want mining? Wow. Uh, they might want water, too. Could happen. You know, their way uh, of Well, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> that turns out that was the many, one of the many things Gosh. that this corporation missed. They, they, they did not hmm. understand. They did not believe that people could possibly understand that life wasn't simply about short-term jobs. <laughs> oh, my. You know, the values of, uh, of the wealthy white men, uh, of course they should rule the world, right? Well, no, not necessarily. And I think we're, we're realizing that more and more people are right now. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking with uh, one of the co-authors of The Water Defenders, uh, Robin Broad, who's uh, worked with her husband on this, The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. My old college uh, Poli-sci professor Daryl Baskin, long since passed away, defined politics as the economy of violence. In El Salvador, the violence is not exactly subtle. In 2014, as El Salvador's water defenders were due to receive an international award, one of their leaders, Marcelo Rivera, had been assassinated. Who was he and how was he connected to the struggle as well as your involvement? Well, thank you for for asking about Marcelo Rivera because we always want to make sure to say his name when we talk about this book. We um, Mar- we begin the book as as you know, um, and as as you, your listeners will hopefully find out, we begin the book with the murder of Marcelo Rivera in 2009 and we begin that way because we wanted the reader to begin where we had begun where we we it was marcelo's murder that really got us into this work we began with the horrifying realization that murder can be the cost of protecting the environment Mm. in other countries yes we know people in new hampshire know that people disproportionately poor and people of color are killed by the slow violence of chemical pi- chemical poisoning yes. of air, land, and water, by gold mining, by agribusiness, by fossil fuel firms. Yet in the United States, seldom do people actually get murdered, brutally tortured and murdered, mm. for leading the fights for water. Um, it turns out that all over the world, hundreds of people are assassinated each year simply because they are environmental defenders. The best source for these figures are a nonprofit group called Global Witness that puts out an annual report. And Global Witness's 
annual report, recent annual reports show that the most dangerous thing in the world to be is an environmental defender. So Marcelo <laughs> was one of these. Marcelo was a 37-year-old um, cultural worker and teacher in northern El Salvador, which is the poorest part of El Salvador. And he was one of the first people to realize that the mining company that wanted to come to his hometown, that it posed threats not only to his hometown, but to El Salvador's key river, the Lempa River, which provides water for more than half of the country. And so Marcelo, Marcelo, this very theatrical, dramatic, hysterical, hysterical humorous um, community leader was, was not only a very effective community organizer, but therefore a key threat to both the mining company and the local officials who wanted the company to come in. So they had to do him in. That's politics played at its basis level. And and was anybody prosecuted for his murder? So that murder was in 2009. Um, very quickly, the government arrested a few people who they claimed had actually done the torture and pulled and, and 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 killed him. That is very easy to do. It's sure. very easy in a country like El Salvador or anywhere else to find the actual yeah. gang members, mm-hmm. it, to to drug users. It's very easy to pull in poor marginalized people and say they shot Marcelo. Mm-hmm. The people actually went to jail briefly for for murdering Marcelo. The more important thing um, is to ask to find what people call the mastermind of the murder, who mm-hmm. actually ordered the murder. Mm-hmm. And that, until this day, so that was 2009, it's now 2021, no one has been charged with being the mastermind. And that is very similar to cases around the world. Again, as Global Witness and as our research shows, in very few of the cases, does the mastermind minds, or do the masterminds of the murder actually get prosecuted? Yeah, round up the usual gang of suspects. We've heard that uh, for a long, long time. And we will get to the good news out of this eventually during this show. Here in the U.S., though it goes against conventional wisdom, Bernie Sanders is one of the very few to understand that many of the people who supported Donald Trump can be important potential allies on some issues. Most people just dismiss, oh, if you supported Donald Trump, we can't work with you. You discovered in El Salvador that allies on the water issue were not necessarily of the FMLN left. What important lessons does this suggest that might apply in our hugely polarized United States? Uh, Another great question, Bert. And um, the credit for this goes to, to the water defenders of El Salvador. So the water defenders in El Salvador, many of them were, had been supporters of the FMLN 
during the Civil War. Some of them weren't even born during the Civil War, but to the extent they were old enough. And so those people who had been FMLs and supporters who had lived through the Civil War, of course, they cut their teeth on organizing and, and campaigning and being activists and standing up to economic and political power during the Civil War. And so the one of the, of course, the, the, key, the key thing to begin with is that, to repeat, that this started with community groups. This started with a locally grounded social movement that then moved up nationally to reach out to likely allies. Uh, but they quickly, the water defenders, or at least some of them, quickly realized that reaching out to likely allies was not going to be enough. The left did not have enough power in the in El Salvador to keep mining out, and so they did something that was very controversial. Um, they started reaching out to individuals who were not likely allies, who we call unlikely allies, mm-hmm. individuals who were not on their side in the past. And this is so important because it, it was it's one of the le- key lessons from these victories, which, as Bert said, we will get to. We will get to the, the, the hopeful <coughs> news. But so, for instance, <coughs> in El Salvador, the Catholic Church is very, very powerful. Yes. So pretty early on, after Marcelo was murdered, the water defenders realized they needed to get the support of the Catholic Church. And the best way to get the support, they decided, to reach was to reach out to the archbishop. This was incredibly controversial. There were lots of meetings and disagreements um, among the water defenders about this because the archbishop at that time was extremely conservative. He was part of the Mm -hmm. right-wing opus day that some of your viewers, listeners will know from the Da Vinci Code. This was not at all a likely ally. And indeed, the archbishop really didn't want to meet with the the water defenders. And they kept trying and trying, and finally he agreed to meet with them. And as as two of them say say to us, recount this, this they knocked on the archbishop's door, and they, as soon as he opened the door, they felt like he was just going to slam the door and tell them to go away. And somehow he let them in, and they started talking, and he said, I don't care about mining. I'm basically not alive with the left. Go away. And then for some reason, no one remembers why, but someone mentioned the word cyanide. Now, here I have to explain for a moment the simple but terrifying scientific reality of gold mining. Yes, please do. Gold mining uses cyanide to to remove the gold from the rock. So the rock has both gold and cyanide. As we say, the gods of the gods of gold, the gods of mining, the gods of false priorities played a joke on human beings. When they put the gold in the rock, they also put cyanide. (coughs) So when gold mining happens, when industrial gold mining happens, almost always cyanide is used, and the cyanide is released and poisons the water in the land. Now, the, the water defenders didn't have to explain this to the archbishop. All they had to do was say the word cyanide. It turns out the archbishop had a degree in chemistry. And as soon as he heard the word cyanide, his whole demeanor changed. And he said, if it uses cyanide, I'm against it. 
And he didn't. And with that, he became, he didn't become a part of the water defenders, but he, he aligned with them. He moved the church in a parallel direction. And that was really key in El Salvador because it, it, because it meant not only that he gave homilies or Sunday talks about, about the dangers of gold mining, but also priests all around the country could do the same thing. Uh, so it yeah. opened the door to really powerful voices and popular education about gold mining. Yeah, you never know. I mean, you, you have to, I think you have to move beyond the likely allies. It's exceedingly important. And certainly throughout all of Central America and South America, the Catholic Church is, is very important, very powerful. So that's that's a biggie. And uh, the Catholic Church has taken some hits in the past in El Salvador, as some of us know, with Oscar Romero, who was assassinated Possibly by the government. Then again, we never actually figured out who the real uh, uh, powers behind the assassination were. But to have them, that, that's really good. Now, you know, we all, everybody, lots of people anyway, love gold. I, I don't care about it particularly. But it's, it, it, as with many consumer products, we don't even think about any environmental effects involved in bringing the item to market. And, you know, th there's... In El Salvador, you believe that banning all metals mining was the right move. It seems like in the you know we're well into the 21st century. Isn't our entire means of communicating today with cell phones and computers dependent on gold and for that matter lithium, which I guess wasn't in uh, El Salvador, but it's in places in Africa. What if protecting the environment with such a ban elsewhere, we lose access to that lithium? A mineral vital to rechargeable batteries and other clean energy alternatives. In other words, might the benefits of some mining outweigh its costs if done responsibly? Can that happen? So that is a, a really key question, Bert, and it's something that it's very important um, to stress. This is not a preachy book. This is not a book that says there should be mining, there should not be mining anywhere. Um, part of what happened in El Salvador with the water defenders and part of what we hope readers will take away from this book is understanding the environmental and social costs of, of mining. And to ask precisely the question you asked, where should we mine and where shouldn't we mine? Now, gold, it turns out, is a really key mineral. I should say here, my late father, um, who spent his career working in Manchester, New Hampshire. My late father was a metallurgical engineer. So uh -huh. we had lots of talks about this. Um, we need gold. You and I, we're talking, I don't know if you're on a cell phone. Well, cell phones have gold in it. Mm -hmm. all, you look around, wherever anyone is listening, or, um, look around, there's metal all over. So absolutely we need gold and other metals. But, and this is what's part of actually hopeful, and this doesn't always turn out to be hopeful in these cases, is we have lots of gold. We have lots and lots of gold. Really? So part of the answer is we need to reuse more gold. Right now in the United States, we recycle somewhere between 20 to 30% um, of gold. Um, 
my my husband and I, our wedding rings are made out of recycled gold, probably from someone's old jewelry. Mm -hmm. But if we can get that recycling figure up to 80 to 90%, which shouldn't actually be that hard, we just need to think about it more. We need more laws and regulations that that incentivize that, that make mm -hmm. that worthwhile. Then we, that combined with thinking more carefully about where mining should be allowed and where it shouldn't be allowed. In El Salvador, a small country that is one main watershed, that where one main river system provides the water for most of the country. That turns out to be a place where mining shouldn't happen. It just can't happen safely. And so essentially what one needs is a checklist of not just where companies say they will mine responsibly, but where governments and, and civil society groups and mm -hmm. scientific experts, where they say this is safe. Let me segue to the question of lithium. Sure. Um, this is really important as we plan for a green future. It's one of the things that some people are starting to talk about, but not enough people. I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland, just two blocks outside of Washington, D.C., and my neighborhood is filled with electric cars. That's good and bad. Mm -hmm. the, the solution for a green future can't be that people replace their two or three <coughs> gas-guzzling cars with electric cars. That can't be the, the future, the, the green future. The green future has to be able to thinking about how to use less metals, how to use l not, not more and more less lithium, which, as you say, is being mined in places like Bolivia with horrible environmental and social costs. Mm. But we need to use, we need, in this case, we need more public transport. Yes. Yes, we need new kinds of cars, but we also need more public transport. And we need that to be accessible to more people. Yeah, this all this electric car stuff, it I don't know, it's it strikes me as, hey, this is a new way to market it. We can have a whole new market by creating these electric cars with their huge batteries that frankly I don't know what the heck they do with them after uh their usable life. Uh it it's the supply, not just the demand that that we really, really have to, to focus on. And uh, you know, and your your listeners who have electric cars shouldn't feel horrible right now. Oh, right. <laughs> um, we should we should just put this into the equation of what a green future yes. means, so that we think about it. We think about the options. Um, and fortunately, fortunately, there are people at least in the there are people in the U.S. and the Biden administration who are doing precisely this as part of what will hopefully be a new infrastructure bill. Yeah, it's it's uh, coming along. I was just reading today, just a minute ago, that uh, Mansion is starting to move a little bit there, but that's a little bit off subject. The subject we're talking about today on Keeping Democracy Alive is uh, gold extraction. People uh, taking power for themselves. The new book is called The Water Defenders, and we're speaking with co-author Robin Broad. She and her husband uh, wrote the book and spent some time in El Salvador. You, you made eight trips there and spent a lot of time with the water defenders. 
what about the other side? Were, were you able to hear their side of the story? And, you know, they could the, the big corporations could talk about jobs. Yeah, we're bringing jobs here. And that seems to trump a lot of things uh, in general when, you know, there's, there's people without money and, and these the big promise of jobs. What, were you able to hear the other side of the story? And what surprised you most about what you learned from that? Well, thanks for that question, too, Bert. So as we thought about writing this book, in part because we wanted Marcelo's story to the story of Marcelo Rivera's life and death, we wanted his story to be written down, to be read by future generations as well as the present generation. But we realized we had one big challenge. We didn't want to write a book that just had the voices of the water defenders, although we are clearly on the side of the water defenders in this tale. I think you might have noticed that, Bert. But um, we realized we needed to to give voice also to what um, some people in El Salvador call the white men in suits, the miners who, the mining executives who tried to convince them to, to let mining in. And we had a problem there. Because in our many trips to El Salvador and in our communication to the head offices of this firm in Canada and Australia, they never agreed to meet with us. They would not let us interview them. Um, indeed, we were probably the only two people who were not allowed to tour Oceana Gold mine in the Philippines, even though they say they will let anyone in. But now I, I digress, so let me get back to, to the answer. We were incredibly fortunate in that because of this corporate lawsuit at the World Bank Group, because PACRIM, later bought by Oceana Gold, sued mm -hmm. the government of El Salvador, we had access through our own unlikely alliance with El Salvador's lead lawyer. We found ourselves with access to internal corporate documents. Oh, cool. We found ourselves with <laughs> legal access, legal access. We had emails. We had internal documents. We had the notes from students and other people that the corporation hired to pretend they were part of the water defenders and sit in on, on meetings. In addition, um, and I won't tell the longer version of this story, in addition, one of my, I'm a professor, and one of my students, when she was doing research on this for her own PhD, found herself getting a whole box of these documents from one of the executives, and she passed that on to us. So we actually had more of the voices of the corporate executives than we expected, and we had more honest voices. So they couldn't claim, oh, we never said this, because we had it in, if you will, black and white. Mm. Um, go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Keep on uh, telling that story. That sounds like uh, it, it provided you some uh, really good tools. And well, it did, and actually it, it also surprised us. We've John and I have worked on, <laughs> I think our history probably goes back almost as far as yours does, Bert. Yeah. We've worked on anti-corporate things for decades, mm -hmm. so we thought we wouldn't be surprised by much of this. 
That's, that's... Um, but we were surprised. So we were surprised, for instance, to find out that that head of one of these mining companies was communicating through a representative of the Vatican to a pope, not the current pope, mm-hmm. to a pope, to try and get the pope to silence what was called, quote-unquote, that pesky archbishop in El Salvador. We were surprised that they tried to get the U.S. government to side, to side on them. Well, we weren't surprised, really, but we were surprised at how blatant it was and how sure they were that we would work. However, on the other hand, we were also surprised at how... I was going to say ignorant, but that may be the wrong term. How uninformed and how uninterested they were in what people like Marcelo and his brother Miguel and their colleague Vidalina Morales, what they really thought about mining or why they were against mining or what they thought progress was. They just, the corporate executives just assumed that they, with with their economic and political power, that they, what they thought about progress and jobs and and a future was the same as what the community, the community members thought. Now let's be fair to these corporate executives. Most of them were geologists and engineers. They weren't. <laughs> they hadn't been trained to think about what communities really uh, value uh, or don't value, and to the extent they had a job to do, or they thought they had a job to do, their job was to find the metal, was to find the gold. And they did that extremely well. Uh They found very rich veins of gold. But the next steps, which they thought were going to be the easy ones, turned out to be much, much harder. (laughs) So how did they get organized and and um as you're you're talking here i'm looking at the uh, the cover of the book the water defenders and uh, adam hochschild who's been on the show a few times terrific writer said uh, that this book reads like a fast-paced thriller listening to you i get this you know one can see how it reads like a fast-paced thriller and uh, people like books like that i think i mean i certainly do <laughs> um so tell us about how it happened the the success of, of the people on the ground. And, you know, it must have started out with no organization whatsoever. Uh, and then uh, eventually uh, it, 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 they, this stop happened. The, uh, this, the ban on uh, gold mining uh, apparently happened. So how, what were the, some of the, uh, the mechanisms that, uh, that came into play here? Obviously, the, having the church on your side was a big deal. What else? How did the local people uh, get organized and participate in this? Well, Bert, that's a, that, we could talk about that for two hours, but I will, I, will, I will cut it down from them. But first of all, thank you for your shout-out to Adam, who is one of the, the great writers, Oh yes, um, great narrative nonfiction writers of the current moment, and not Absolutely. just the current moment. Absolutely. So I don't know if, you know, I'm supposed to be, we're supposed to be telling your listeners to buy The Water Defenders, <laughs> but here I am saying, go buy Adam's books. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, and like like many of us aspiring narrative nonfiction writers, we learned a lot from Adam's own writing. So mm. that that having that praise from him meant a oh, means a huge uh, amount. But 
The, but, you know, once when, when I was giving a talk about this story to an academic audience, someone asked the question, what kind of focus groups did the water defenders have as they decided to frame their fight as pro-water as opposed to anti-mining? And I had to keep from laughing because the water defenders, the, 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 the local people like Marcelo first and then Miguel and Vidalina and others who, who we follow in the book, they, they understood from the start that this was a fight for water. If you call them anti-mining, they don't like it uh -huh. because that's not how they see themselves. Uh -huh. They see themselves, if mining didn't have these horrible, horrible social and environmental costs, they wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't probably be against it. But they're against mining because they were trying to save their water. Yes. And indeed, they had had experience, this handful of local activists had had experience trying to save the water before my, the mining companies tried to came, come in. They had, the local mayor had pet projects that threatened the, the, the water supply. Um, one was a, a garbage dump, a huge garbage dump that was mm. going to be right on the side of the, a tributary to the Lampa River. And another was a, a um, hog farm, a huge hog farm. The water defenders were successful at, at um, defeating that garbage dump, that landfill, but not successful at defeating the hog farm. And then with Marcelo taking the lead, they realized that mining was going to be even a more dangerous activity for the water, for their water. And so they began really as a small group of individuals. As someone said to us, they rode their motorcycles from barrio, from, from village to village, from town to town, knocking on people's door and telling them about the dangers of mining. And they, in turn, the water defenders, as they were doing this, they also had to learn more about mining themselves. Oh, so um, Vidalina, Vidalina, who is the uh, heroine, a shero of, of this book, Vidalina Morales, honest, says to us in all honesty, you know, in the beginning, I thought mining would be good. My thought, uh -huh. my family, we could all get jobs. Right. And then they started looking into the impact. People in richer countries assume that people in poorer countries or poorer communities can't do this kind of questioning, that they can't do this kind of investigation that they just want any kind of jobs mm -hmm. that exist. Um, part of what the water defenders of El Salvador and people we've worked with in the Philippines and elsewhere demonstrated is that that's not at all true. So Vidalina, Marcelo, Miguel, they began their own research. They went across the Lampa River to Honduras, which... Um, Anyone who's followed the murder of Berta Cáceres or the U.S. support for the, the coup in Honduras um, knows that El Salvador has, I mean, Honduras has lots and lots of mines. Oh, wow. So all they had to do was cross the river to, to see the, what the impact of mining was in Honduras. 
And that led them to have more and more evidence that mining was bad. And then to jump ahead, they quickly realized as they built local support, they quickly realized that they had to go national. Um, and again, that was another challenge, how to bring people in from around the El Salvador who didn't know much of anything about mining, because there was no mining in El Salvador at that point, mm. who didn't understand the, um, even the key environmental groups didn't necessarily understand really? the, the impact of mining on water. But they, they formed a coalition called the Roundtable on Metals Mining, or La Mesa, as it's called in, in Spanish, uh-huh. that decided to that its goal was to ban all mining in El Salvador. Something that sounds like an audacious, <laughs> um, if not ludicrous, demand. And then as the mining companies went global with this fight, remember the mining company sued the government of El Salvador in a court in Washington, D.C. at the World Bank. In addition, the mining company itself was global. It was in Canada and the U.S. and Australia. As the mining company went global with the fight, so too did La Mesa go global and build and, and link up with a group that was, event, that was called the International Allies of La Mesa. Uh-huh. And this will be a good place to talk about the international allies and where the struggle is and just uh, you know in terms of the the theater of this the drama you know people here across the united states uh, certainly knew about the standing rock fight where there was it was kind of a similar thing uh big oil from canada oddly enough huh, uh you know they they wanted they insisted on building a pipeline and they had support from uh the uh, 45th president, uh, it, it posed a real threat to their water. People from all over the world came to support them. It was very, you know, romantic, David versus Goliath. And guess what? David won. And it's going on in, in uh, Michigan as well, in Flint, Michigan, where the water has been terribly polluted, you know, with the lid. Uh, and it can it can happen, and, and we need inspiration like this. And to see that uh, the experts, so called, you know, certainly don't believe that you know these poor people uh, can possibly organize and and figure it out. They're not just the experts. That you know, in something called a democracy, uh, we can participate in decision making. And too often. Uh, there are uh, uh, settlements, uh, judges uh, from from certain countries, and, and you found this out with the uh, Cent- International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, uh, that they can uh, rule uh, over other countries, and they get to decide whether a sovereign nation's laws are legal. That's a big deal. What can be done about that? Well, so there are lots of questions and sub-questions in your, in, in your yeah. insightful overall umbrella question. But um, let, me, let me start, and then you can push me where you want me to go. But the, yeah. um, the, the tribunal at the World Bank Group, yes. and you, you said its name absolutely correctly, but we'll, I'll just call it ICSID from now on, sure. or in Spanish, CIADE, um, that... In, in this case, in this amazing case, the corporation, 
hack rim slash Oceana Gold right. lost. Uh-huh. We don't say the government won. We're very careful about that. Um, because the, go- the government El Salvador actually, the, the corporation lost. The government of El Salvador lost almost a decade and all that lost time and energy, never mind the hundreds of millions of dollars. So it also paid a price. But um, so people should not take from this story that this, this narrative that ICSID is a place where it's easy for governments to win. Right. One of the lessons is how difficult it was. This was a a small case as far as ICSID was concerned. It was hundreds of millions of dollars, not billions of dollars. <laughs> it was a small country. The case dragged on for more than seven years. Well, No other country should go through that. It is outrageous. In addition, why in the world should three tribunalists in a secret court in Washington, D.C., have the right to decide what happens to a community in northern El Salvador. When we first met Marcelo's brother, Miguel, in 2009, just months after Marcelo's murder, that's what he asked us to help help them understand. That's how we came into the picture, John and I. <clears throat> and eventually international allies. We are not Salvadoran experts. We don't pretend to be Salvadoran experts. Part of why this worked is because we let the people in El Salvador, La Mesa, be the experts, and they let us be the experts on ICSID, and we trusted each other. But in terms of what has to happen, countries, governments need to leave ICSID. They, Bolivia has left. Brazil has never been a member. I can't stress that enough. The the line from the mainstream development and economists in the U.S. and elsewhere is that if you don't belong to ICSID, you won't get foreign direct investment. That certainly hasn't been the case for Brazil. Mm. So um, you don't need to be a member of ICSID to get investment. And indeed, if you're a smart government that cares about your people, and some governments, and I know. I, do, I don't prescribe to the the view that all governments are corrupt and don't care about their people. I agree. Um, I I think that governments are just many governments are are hamstrung. They don't know what to do, but and they have all these powerful governments and mainstream economists and so-called experts right. telling them that they have to belong to ICSID. One of the things that has to happen and is starting to happen is governments have to question ICSID more and more and, not, and, and leave it. Um, there's no reason why someone has to be a part, uh, a government has to be a part of ICSID yeah. in order to get foreign investment. And that, as I said earlier, there are hundreds, thousands, probably more than that, laws and regulations that privilege, that prioritize uh global corporations over ordinary people. Right. And those have to be dismantled. And dismantling ICSID, or investor state dispute resolution clauses, in trade agreements, it's not going to be enough to change what's been put in place over decades, but it's a really important start. And that's part of why this case of El Salvador is so important. And speaking of important and you know, being replicable in other places. Uh, Oceana Gold, 
a gold mining interest, is now targeting South Carolina. What might South Carolinians learn from the Salvadoran fight? Well, John and I were actually just in South Carolina um, earlier this summer, not going to the mining site, but, but building, trying to start networking to learn more about what was going on there and more about what local groups were doing and how the water defender and and how they the water defenders of El Salvador might offer them some lessons. Part of what these corporations are, are doing is that so dastardly is so as they are stopped in country in a place like El Salvador, they then look around and say, okay, where can we mine? Where right. is their gold? And where is a community that where are communities that might buy our job uh, the corporation's line the corporation's myth that jobs are the most important thing, and not surprisingly, South Carolina, right. uh, the highlands, the mountains of South Carolina, are a place where there's a lot of poverty, there's not a lot of jobs, and it turns out there's a lot of gold, and so Oceana Gold moved into South Carolina in a mine called the Haley, H-A-I-L-E mine. And actually, this this also relates to El Salvador because part of what the internal memos of Oceana Gold show was that it did it in part so it could say to El Salvador and the Philippines and other countries, where New Zealand, northern New Zealand, where it was mining or wanted to mine, see we are a safe com- company. We are so safe that the United States let it, lets us mine. Oh, my goodness. Right, right now in South Carolina, there is a growing opposition. I don't want to overstate it because, again, we haven't been on that site. Um, there is a growing opposition that one can follow thanks to a <coughs> local reporter for one of the, the newspapers. Oceana Gold has, in the last few years, exceeded its emissions of allowable emissions of cyanide and other toxic chemicals more than once. In each case, after they have exceeded it, they have acknowledged exceeding it. But that's, again, ludicrous if you think about it. So they don't have procedures in place to actually stay within the legal limits. But they are—they have procedures in place to say, "Oops, we goofed again," and that's supposed to reassure the local population. And the the local population and some South Carol, some of South Carolina's legislature is starting to say, "This is not enough." Yeah, fascinating how so many cases of the greatest polluters are find it useful to locate in the poorest areas they can find and there's so many examples of that from you know native american uh, reservations to poor areas of the bronx and it, it it's a it's a pattern it, it really is well i wonder i mean there, we could talk about this for another hour easily uh, fascinating story what do you think of president biden's step to date re- related to water oil pipelines and mining is is he learning some lessons from this is he getting it i mean he's got a lot on his plate but but your thoughts about that and as you answer that what people can do here 
So briefly on President Biden, because, of course, this can change and it, it mm-hmm. will change. But what should I say? John and I are cautiously optimistic. Mm-hmm. We're, we're excited about what's happening in the Department of Interior, especially yes. with the appointment of Deb Holland. This is a, that's a huge thing. Oh, that's great. Huge. Yeah. Um, your listeners also might be very interested to know that um, trans that President Biden, when he did when he followed up on what Obama had done, President Obama had done, and stopped the Trans Canada, the TC pipeline. Right. So this was stopped by President Obama, who said it it will lead to uh, increased climate change. It was then restarted yes. by President, he whose name who not, should not be said yes, by that president. He's orange-colored. Yes, go ahead. Yes, the <laughs> orange guy. Yeah. Um, and then President Biden, one of his, his early moves was mm-hmm. to say, I'm stopping it. Yay. Your it, listeners may be interested and hopefully will also be outraged to know that TransCanada, now called TC Energy, has initiated, taken the initial steps in suing the U.S. government for $15 billion, $15 billion because of the stoppage of that pipeline. Um, we don't yet know. It's, this will be, it's like the, it will be, if it continues, it will be like the, Pacific Rim, Oceania Gold uh-huh. case against El Salvador. It will be heard by a secret tribunal, oh, which hopefully will be less secret. Yikes. Yikes. It is absolutely outrageous, and people should be telling President Biden to stay strong. Stay strong. To well, stay strong. And they should be doing the same in there. Well, I don't want to be preachy here, but um, I will say, and I know many of your listeners are in New Hampshire where there has have been a, attempts to to stop corporate dumping of chemicals. Yes. One of the things that people in El Salvador have done, even though it's the first country in the world to ban all metals mining, to have a unanimous congressional vote saying there will be no metals mining in yes. El Salvador, wow. the would... water defenders have also built what they call territories free of mining, where municipalities have voted to say, uh, no matter what happens on a national level, on a local level, we will not allow mining in. And that's a really important thing that can happen around the world. Yes. It's happened in other communities and other states in the U.S. on fracking, and it needs to, it needs to grow. That movement needs to grow. Yes, we've come to the end of our hour here. It's been fascinating, and I agree very much. Municipal strength. It, it, it there, there's a lot that can be done at the municipal level. Fascinating, important book. The Water Defenders: How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. We've been speaking with them. It's co-authors Robin Broad. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, providing uh, a bit of uh, hope that every now and then David can beat Goliath. And if we learn the right lessons, it can, we can keep it. Up. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Bert. A pleasure to be with you today. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. There's something to get up, stand up. Don't give up the fight. 
your rights. Get up, stand.